Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Trading Desk. My name is Joshua Thanos. I'm your host as always. And today I have a very special guest, an old friend of mine, and that's Tim Masso. Good to be here. Thanks, Josh, for having me. Not a problem at all, Tim. Thanks for making some time to sit down and chat with me. I've uh, I've been running through different guests and I've been uh, uh, wanting to get you on the show and, and finally we're able to to make it work. And I'm, I'm really excited today. I think we will have a, uh, a very interesting and um, an in-depth talk uh, on our topic, which today will be collecting chronographs. But first, before that, uh, we do our customary on-air wrist check. So, uh, Tim, what do you got on the wrist? Well, appropriately enough, I'm wearing a chronograph. I'm wearing my 2017 Zen ECM 1.1. It's a 43-millimeter uh, tegmented steel limited edition. They made 500 that year. It was sort of a tribute to Zen's own 1997 ezm one So I got the 1.1, and it's basically everything the original was with a few more Zinn proprietary technologies. Oh, wow. I know that um, you you whittled down your uh, your collection to, to uh, you know, basically rid yourself of the JLCs once you've kind of uh, reached your your goal of collecting in that. And I know you, you had, you uh, bought into Zinn. So is that the only Zinn that you have? Yeah. At the moment, it's the only luxury watch that I wear on a regular basis. It's very personal to me. I think it was sort of a milestone watch. I bought it to celebrate my time with the company. And I think it gets more wrist time than any of the JLCs did. So if you're going to mm. go from a collection into one watch, you better wear that one watch. And I have. Makes sense. All right. Great. I think that's a great choice, man. There's, uh, you know, not as, um, as well known or as heralded as some of the other brands, but uh, a fantastic watch with great history. All right. And uh, in terms of my wrist check, so today I'm wearing also a chronograph, uh, maybe not as um, technical as yours or uh, or made of tegmented steel, but uh, just regular, uh, I think it's 316 stainless steel, and that's a, uh, an Omega Speedmaster. This is a 005 version, so it has the um, plastic crystal, but closed case back, a uh, integrated chrono, Manual wind movement, 42 millimeters. Uh, I guess this is the original Moonwatch, right? Or this is the what would be referred as the Moonwatch. And uh, my one of a, uh, quite a few chronographs that I have in my collection, and uh, a very wearable watch, especially on Speedy Tuesdays. But because it's not water resistant, can't be in every day. Right. That's no knock against it. That's an excuse to buy a water resistant watch and add to the collection. That's right. Well, Wet Watch Wednesdays is a, is quite a rotation for me. So. Many Panerai's, Tudors, and and other watches that that make it on other days, but I try to make sure I wear my Speedy on Speedy Tuesday to give it some love. Um, and I think that's that's a good way to kind of segue into today's topic, which is going to be uh, collecting chronographs. So, Tim, when I was thinking about different topics for the show, and there are so many that we can talk about, um, I thought to myself, you know, what's one complication that has been done by almost every brand? Um, and uh, that has many different looks, many different feels, and uh, can be bought at almost every price point. I think the first one that you can think of is going to be chronograph. I think you'd agree. Yeah, I think people call it the king of the complications. I'm not sure if that's because it really is or because it's just everywhere. It's, it's the ubiquitous complication. I think when a company wants to expand its line from a time or a time and a date watch, the first complication they add to the catalog is a chronograph. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think I was having this discussion with our friend Mitch Schwartz um, about, you know, when does a brand uh, decide to make a chronograph? And I think we figured that any brand that makes 500 or more watches in a year seems to 
add a chronograph to their to their collection. So you know, every brand that we can think of that doesn't make a chronograph makes less than 500 watches per year. So I don't know if that's the rule, but uh, it sounds like it, it, it makes some sense for me. I don't know, maybe you can shed some light on that. Well, it's kind of fun. If you look at Debethune, they have two chronographs in the catalog and they only make 150 watches a year. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in terms of prioritizing complications, this is a company that's going to make no more than a few dozen of any given model, and they have not one but two chronograph models in the catalog. Uh, Langundheina, I mean, they're not going to make more than a few dozen watches of any kind. I don't know if they'll even make 100 watches a year. And they have a chronograph in the catalog. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just the thing to do. I think it's the first way to show mastery beyond basic watchmaking. And I also think that, frankly, if you're playing to the meat of the market, it, you've got to be either opt-in for some sort of a diving watch or a chronograph. Yeah, I agree. I think that, yes, that's that's kind of any type of mass market piece, which is basically sport pieces at this point. It's either going to be a dive watch or a chronograph. And funny enough, like the the king of, of the watches, the one that wears the crown, uh, their, their two most popular watches, and we're talking about Rolex, is the Submariner and the Daytona, so the dive watch and, and the chronograph. So I think that proves your point. Yeah, definitely. And I would also say that if you look at Kari Voodalainen, I mean, mm -hmm. here's another guy who's making about as few watches as you can on a yearly basis. And he's got his own masterpiece chronograph in the collection. And you can, you can buy the Caliber 25 watch from him and you might have the only one built that year. So wow. it, it really defies, it defies price point, brand positioning, and I think volume. It's just the thing to have. Yeah. But for me, um, chronographs, they're just not that interesting. And I find myself in a position where uh, the chronographs that interest me most are the ones that interpret the complication in an uncommon form to make it easier to read, more practical, uh, something that you're more likely to incorporate into your routine. Because when I think of the Rolex Daytona, I think of a watch that no one can actually read. Mm. And, you know, when I think of the Omega Speedmaster Professional, Again, it's it's just a very cramped, limited, 1950s-inspired dial. So the chronographs that I love are things like the chronos made by Debethune with the central chronograph mm -hmm. registers, jumping digital minutes displays like the Porsche Design Counter by Eterna or the JLC Extreme Lab 2. And then I love the Arnold & Son CTB because it's not necessarily more readable than the others, but it's just a riot to see the deadbeat second and the sweep second on the center of the dial. So those are the chronographs that I like. Sure. Okay. So you're you're looking for things that are that are going to be more functional as a chronograph themselves, as opposed to just a feature on a watch that's not being used. Yeah, exactly. Because if you look at, for example, a dark side of the moon, or if you look at another mm -hmm. watch with the caliber 9900 Omega chronograph in it, like the Seamaster Diver 300 meter chrono, mm -hmm. you look at that hour and minute counter at three o'clock on the dial. And you're like, good God, there aren't even minute marks. <laughs> and you've got a dial the size of basically like a P. And it's got 360 degrees, no calibrations, and a couple of hour marks. Are you really going to be able to tell five minutes from six minutes from seven minutes on that? There are no markings. How are you going to use it? It's not, you can't, it's not a useful chrono. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. So, well, so the, in order for the, in, in, in the sense of being, you know, organized or whatnot for this discussion, um, I wanted to talk about different chronos at different price points. Um, and I think the price points that make sense here are going to be 5,000 and under 10,000 and under 20,000 and under, and then, uh, 
uh, 50,000 and under and then 50,000 and above. And I think that you can find there's groups of, of really cool collectible chronographs in each uh, price point. So I think it's a good way to kind of separate everything because you're going to get, once you get up in certain price points, you're going to have different types of watches. So um, if uh, so, let's get started on that. So if we're talking about collectible chronos under 5,000, I think you, you own one. That's correct. I've got my ECM 1-1. All right. And though, uh, and I would say, obviously, well, I feel like I own one, but after, <laughs> after the last statement made by you, I don't know if you would recommend it. The, uh, uh, the 1950s inspired Omega Speedmaster uh, Moonwatch, which I, I'd say is certainly collectible, but maybe not as useful as maybe your, your Zen or, or some other chronographs, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's always a matter of personal taste because while I do like chronographs that are more readable, my number one criterion for buying a watch is how it looks. And sure. I'll be totally frank and upfront about that. How it looks matters a lot to me, even above and beyond chrono function. Yeah, I think at this point when these are these, uh, the function or the usefulness of the watch itself comes secondary to, you know, the, uh, the collectability or, uh, or like you said, like the, the look of the watch because they are fashion accessories in some regard. Obviously, people are buying them or collecting them for different reasons. But if the watch doesn't look good, you're never going to wear it. So I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. That that's the first uh, the first thing that you you go for. I'd say fit and finish the way the way it looks and the way it fits on your wrist are the two most important things when purchasing a watch. Uh, once you get past that, because that's going to allow you to wear the watch, then it has to be movement and value. I think are the are the other the other factors, right? So in terms of that. Watches, chronos that you can find for under 5,000, there are a, a plethora, right? And we're not going to get into like, you know, uh, quartz fashion watches. We're talking about, you know, uh, Swiss watches. So I'd say starting at maybe like a Tag Heuer Monaco or a Tag Heuer Carrera would be kind of the, like a great entry level piece. It's a mass produce uh, modular chrono, right? That's, that's not a, it's not integrated, right? Either of those movements. Which watch was that again? The, either the uh, the Carrera Chrono or the which I guess that that there's a broad spectrum of Carrera Chronos or the Monaco though the I'm trying to I'm trying to remember if the Monaco has an integrated or a uh, there 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 is a new of, there is there is a new manufacturer movement Monaco so it's it's recently joined the ranks of integrated movements. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say for the most part you're going to be getting some sort of unless you're going historic. I mean hell even the original Monaco's used a modular movement because that original. Uh, that original Caliber 11 family was a Buren micro rotor automatic with the Dubois de Praz module on top. Right. So there's actually no shame in buying a modular movement Monaco because it's always been that way. Yeah. Uh, I would also say, though, with the Carreras, because, you know, we do talk about used watches, it's important to recognize that for under $5,000, you can get an El Primero powered Carrera Caliber 36 flyback. Mm. So you don't necessarily need to compromise with the, the modular or the integrated movement. That's true. And, that, and that's the thing. So there is, there is going to be a difference too. So like one or, or one big divide between the chronos is whether it's going to be a modular. So it's going to have a base movement with a chrono module on it or in a fully integrated like an El Primero or even my, um, my Speedmaster, which is integrated, which, but functionally they don't always, they're not always the best. I know that uh, when I was doing my research, um, the El Primero movements that were used in the in the Rolex uh, Daytonas for what I guess about twenty years, uh, or maybe uh, less. Eight, 
about 1988 to 1999. So a little bit okay. less. Okay, so a little bit less, right? So uh, for, for those t- that time period, the, the movement was was actually reworked and scaled down in order to be more efficient because it's not a totally efficient movement um, originally. So just because it's an integrated um, chronograph doesn't mean it works better, but it, there's more engineering, I guess, that goes into an integrated chrono as opposed to a, a modular, right? Well, you know, it's it's kind of like the whole notion of whether a, a movement is built for its case in terms of size and shape. Mm-hmm. Modular chronos, by their nature, are generally created as as a means to a convenient end. Right. So you wind up with a thicker watch. For example, if you look at the rarely seen Audemars Piguet Royal Oak Offshore Scuba from the 2000s, mm-hmm. that's got a thin JLC 889 in it, and it's, of course, it's got no module, so the watch feels razor thin compared to an offshore. Why is the offshore so thick? Mostly because it's a module on top of a base, mm-hmm. and that's one of the ways you can tell a fake offshore. If there isn't a tunnel down to the date below the modular complication, if the date's flushed the dial, you've got a generally a a counterfeit offshore so the offshore and most modular movements modular movement watches they're going to be thicker because you're inherently putting one movement on top of another right you're stacking exactly so uh, but in in the 5000 hour range you're going to see different you know uh, you're going to see the modulars and you're going to see integrated chronos um other other you know chronos in that price range and we're talking mostly pre-owned so um you know we're saying we're looking at pieces that are their market price is going to be under five thousand. You're also looking at Breitling, so you have Navitimers and Chronomats that are that are going to be well within that price range, and and they have their own merits as well. Yeah, I would say that it's it's important to realize that you can get a really cool watch in in that price point. Like for example, if you were to look for a Fortis Marine Master Chronograph Alarm mm. yep. used, you could potentially get yourself a swimmable automatic winding chronograph with an alarm and at that point you know you're you're definitely a step above things like basic modular movement monocos uh speedmaster professionals mm-hmm. I, I think it's important that to know that you could still get a heck of a lot of of complication for under five thousand dollars if you know where to look um and i would also say realistically you want to consider stuff like older Omega Seamaster chronographs because they're fantastic watches. Mm-hmm. They're chronometers, they're dive watches, they have extensible dive bracelets, uh, the clasps extend. So I, I wouldn't overlook the Seamaster side of the Omega chronograph family just because I think you'll find more variety there. And I also think between the Planet Oceans, the Diver 300 meters, and the, the Aqua Terras, you're going to find all three of the families available. Uh, under the $5,000 price point, and you might even be able to get some fun stuff like the iridescent blue dials, the two-tones, watches on straps, watches on bracelets. You know, you're not going to be getting yourself a Rolex Daytona for sub-$5,000, but you can absolutely get an Omega in that price point. Mm -hmm. And I would also say, realistically, don't overlook the Breitling Navitimer, especially in its older iterations. It is available for $5,000 or less, and that's definitely something to consider. Sure, absolutely. And well, chronomatics, uh, chronomats, uh, navitimers. You know, you said super ocean chronos. There's there's an endless supply, and it's kind of funny because because the chronograph is not an easy movement to uh, to create. I mean, uh, so I guess what uh, the history is that you know Louis Monet created the first chronograph, basically uh, a, a a a chronograph 
movement in a box, right? And, and he was able to, uh, to you know, time events. And this was 18, early 1800s, 1815 or something like that. So, you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, a lot of these watches have been being made. There's brands that are older than, than, that, than that movement. So it was a fairly recent in terms of watchmaking movement, not easy to make. It has to be super, very uh, um, uh, precise as well, because, you know, if your watch runs five seconds off a day, that's actually pretty good. But if you have a chronograph that's off by five seconds, <laughs> you have a, a, an unusable chronograph. So it has to be very, very precise. In fact, I would contend that it probably has to be the most precise movement out of any movements or, or any complications, right? Moon phase, GMT, um, you know, what else can we think of uh, uh, that are complications? Uh, it has to be the most precise. So it's it's kind of crazy that you can see that every brand makes them and they put them in multiple cases across multiple lines. I would also say that in terms of, you know, speaking of the origin of chronographs, right. uh, a, a co-claimant to innovation, uh, Nicholas Riosec, right. that's a segue into recommending one of the Montblanc Riosec watches, which you can find right at about $5,000. And I've seen them for four seven four eight, so they definitely exist in that price range. But, you know, at that point, you're getting between 60 and 70 hours of power reserve. You're getting a vertical clutch with a column wheel. You're getting a GMT that's built right in with a date. So you're getting a compound complication there, and you're getting a nicely sized watch from a big brand that'll always be around to service it. And it's not common. That's the thing. We spoke about mm -hmm. the the Breitlings, the Tags, the Seamasters, the Speedmasters. But I guarantee you that no matter how stacked your office watch club is, no one else is going to have a Mont Blanc Nicolas Riasek. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, and you said two things there that I want to touch on because not everybody listening knows these things. So you said a vertical clutch and a column wheel. So yes. uh, you pointed that out because there are other options in terms of how chronos can work. So there's vertical and lateral, lateral clutches, right? Those are the two main. And there's also a cam and a column wheel. So if you, uh, you want to just, uh, you know, use the uh, Tim Tim Masso speak and break it down to uh, so, so that somebody even like me can understand those, uh, those portions of the movement. Yeah, of course. Well, the column wheel is the traditional way to switch between the stop, start, and reset functions of a watch. Right. If you want to think of it, it's like the crenellated turret of a castle. Mm -hmm. It's got little turret tops sticking up and then there are wells between the crenellated towers and this column wheel that looks like a, a castle turret uh, it spins and as it spins the horns of various le uh, levers pop out and pop in and that actuates the stop start reset of the chrono now the vertical clutch is like a top hat symbol if you can think of like a band and you think of the drummer and he's got you know, he's got symbols that by footwork will clash together and then raise back up like a top hat. Mm -hmm. Well, a vertical clutch looks just like top hat symbols. And when the chronograph's not running, uh, one of those symbols is always turning, but it's being held in suspension. And then when the chronograph is activated, they clash together and there's no play because there are no teeth. They're just two flat surfaces coming into contact. So there's no jump or stagger the way there is with a lateral clutch, which inherently involves two sets of teeth meshing. So the, the vertical clutch isn't as beautiful to see, but it's more efficient and you can leave it running full time without any hazard to the watch. Right. Uh, the lateral clutch is more beautiful, but it's less precise. The column wheel is more crisp to the, to the touch. Like when you operate your chronograph, you can feel with the column wheel, especially a good one, it feels sharper. It feels more mechanical. Whereas most cam or coulisse as they're called, 
chronographs feel a little bit gummy. Like mm -hmm. there's not quite the same positive, you know, bolt action rifle feel to a cam system. Though I'll mention with some of the better ones, like those used by Omega, like a current generation Speedy Pro is almost indistinguishable from a column wheel. So it doesn't matter where you're getting your cam chronograph. Sure. Okay. But so I'd say uh, as a rule, it's uh, there might be some exceptions, but you're going to be paying more for a column wheel than for a cam. And, and uh, but in terms of lateral and, and uh, uh, vertical clutch, I guess the price points vary uh, greatly because, because they, you know, it's going to be more about the, the look um, as opposed to, well, I guess the feel is better on, on a vertical clutch, but the lateral is like you said, more beautiful. So I remember you did a video on, I believe there was a, it was a Roger Dubuis that had an exposed vertical clutch, um, but even still, it's not it's not as beautiful as that lateral clutch, which is going to have like basically like an arm moving back and forth, right? That's correct. The Roger Dubuis 680 series of movements does feature a visible vertical clutch. Mm -hmm. It's still not much to see. Uh, that's why at Patek Philippe and in general, the highest of the high end of the market, you're going to see that the clutches are lateral clutches. And the higher up you go, the more measures are taken to try to refine the action to the point where you'll see Agenor or De Batoon working to, and, and frankly also Patek Philippe, mm -hmm. working to reduce the jump inherent in a lateral clutch. But most collectors who are fairly sophisticated would find a vertical clutch on a six-figure watch to be kind of insulting. Sure, I can understand that. Yeah, because when you're when you're paying for the type of engineering and you want to be able to see these movements, it makes a lot of sense that way. So I'd say to wrap up the 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 sub five thousand um, dollar chronographs, I'd say one that we have to make sure that we we mention is the IWC thirty seven fourteen, or now they have a thirty seven sixteen, but uh, the Portuguese chrono. Yes. I think it's an important piece. Um, you know, it has a different feel than a lot of these. It's more of a dress chrono. It's also, basically, I would say it, it would be the flagship uh, model for for IWC. I mean, I guess the big pilot's going to be one of the pilot's chrono, but more people associate that watch, that Portuguese chrono, with um, IWC, I believe, than any other watch. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's, the Portuguese chrono has been the longest running Portuguese model. So if you think about what was going on at IWC in you know 1997, 1998? Mm -hmm. It was a different company, and the constant through that whole period has been the Portuguese chronograph. Also worth mentioning, if you don't like the really big Portuguesers, traditionally that one at just under 41 millimeters has been the way to get into a Portuguese without wearing a dinner plate on your wrist. Yeah, um, I would add one more thing. Since we talked about my Zin earlier, mm -hmm. I don't have the wrist for the 46 millimeter Zin Easy M10. But if you want every technology that Zin has created in one watch, the 46 millimeter tegmented titanium Easy M10 is the watch to get. It's got their dehumidification system. It's got a sapphire capped, fully loomed, bi-directional pilot's bezel. It's got the center register SZ01 quasi-proprietary movement. It's water-resistant. It's swimmable. Everything about this watch represents the best of what Zinn has to offer. If you can imagine something like a McLaren P1 or a McLaren Senna representing everything McLaren knows mm -hmm. in one car, that's what the EZM10 represents. And used 
even on a bracelet used, you can still find those under $5,000. So I wanted to shout that out. Well, yeah, I think that's, <laughs> you're, you're doing, you're doing a service for Zinn and, and, uh, just so I have a frame of reference, roughly how many watches does Zinn do you think manufacture in a year? I'm sure it's tens of thousands. I would bet they make probably somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000 watches. Okay. Most of their watches are at a fairly low price point. It's, it's difficult to say because it's a privately held company. Mm -hmm. They're not part of a group. And, you know, they don't seek chronometer certifications or anything that might be a public record. Sure. So don't think of them as a niche brand. They're making a few tens of thousands of watches per year. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at something like the ECM 10 or, you know, you're looking at a limited edition like the ECM 11, you were talking a very small proportion of, of annual production. Sure. So if you want the one that everyone else doesn't have, look for something like that. That or the 3006 Hunter's Chronograph, which is both beautifully loomed and beautifully laid out. It's a wonderful romantic notion of hunting at night by the light of the moon without artificial lights. And so it's got a moon phase complication built around that idea that you can't, you can't hunt in Germany with artificial lights. So mm. you've got a watch that will tell you when the moon is at its brightest. Well, Tim, you have me currently searching eBay. Zin. <laughs> so I think you're uh, uh, you've you've got definitely some uh, some good points when it comes to um, looking at their watches as collectibles and and their chronographs look fantastic. So let's move on to the next price range, and I think things kind of uh, dry up a little bit. So there's only not too many to look at in that price range, um, but I would say that that's the under ten, but over five. Um, so ones that you can uh, watches that you can find, maybe not as technically sound, but they but do have their merit. And I'd say Hublot Big Bangs uh, in steel and other non-precious metals you can easily find uh, in that price range. Again, you're not going to be seeing watches that are, are you know, uh, have maybe the, the greatest engineering in terms of their movements, but it's more about uh, a uh, the materials that they're made from. So ceramic, uh, steel, titanium, um, uh, what other, uh, there's all sorts of crazy materials that, that Hublot uses. And, and again, you can find these in their big bangs that are going to be in that price range. Um, and, uh, you're also, you can also find a lot of the Jaeger, uh, chronos. So, uh, master control chronograph. Um, what else you can find a lot of their diving chronographs are going to be in that price range as well. Yeah. What is the, what is the upper limit for this price category? 10,000. Okay, so for for ten thousand or less, I think you've got to be looking for for value. Sure. Um, in terms of higher end watches that have depreciated to this price point, rather than looking at watches that are native to this price point yeah. as new timepieces. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe for under ten thousand, you should have no problem swinging an Omega Dark Side of the Moon or oh, yeah. Gray Side of the Moon. Mm -hmm. And for me, the Platinum Dial gray metallic case in ceramic for the gray side of the moon makes that probably one of the most inventive and enduringly beautiful and alluring of the 2010s chronograph designs. Mm -hmm. I would also say in this price point now, you're firmly in the range where you don't have to stretch to buy one of those uh, Paul Gerber designed Fortis alarm chronographs, which I really just think are an incredible value for, you know, four, five, six thousand dollars used, mm -hmm. you're getting an alarm, which is awesome. You're getting a watch that is a pilot's timepiece. You're getting a chronograph function. You're getting a rotating bezel. You're getting a lot for your money. And Paul Gerber, who is, you know, one of the luminaries of independent watchmaking, designed this for them in 1998. So I don't want to, I don't want to undersell its, its lineage as sure. well. I would also say 
if you're looking for that kind of independent watchmaking cool, um, then go for a Hobbering COS. I would hmm. say that's a great way for about six to seven thousand dollars. The you know the COS is an impressive integration of all chronograph functions into a standard crown. So it's a chronograph designed by Richard Hobbering, who was with IWC. He was with Alonga Unzona. He's been on his own since 2004 with his wife helping to run the company. And you're getting a, a watch that's made in Austria by a company that only makes a few examples, maybe a few dozen of each model per year. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, their pr production each year is probably like 50 to 150 watches. And the COS, which came out in 2008, is probably the most inventive chronograph control system you can buy for under 10 grand. I would also say that if you want a real high horology piece, depreciation being your friend, the Arnold and Son CTB is out of this world. A $27,000 watch, $27,000 watch. Yep. And in steel, I'm talking, you can get a hand-finished movement, an elaborately hand-finished movement at that. It looks visually more impressive than most of the Vacheron automatic calibers, like the 2450, 2460. It looks better than that. It's got a 60-minute chronograph minute register, which I like because I think 30 is not enough. And then it's got a central coaxial set of deadbeat seconds for time and sweep seconds for chronograph. Jeez. So you're getting a gorgeous movement. You're getting a very wearable watch. It's a 44, but it wears like a 41. Mm -hmm. You're getting a cool independent brand that's backed by Citizen Watch of Japan. So there's a lot of money to preserve the company, ensure service and parts forever. And it's got a chronograph aesthetic with the deadbeat central second and the sweep central second. That's like nothing else in the business. So for nine grand, you're getting a $27,000 watch that's all of the above. And I think that's a cool, unconventional option because people don't talk about Arnold and Son. Yeah, I agree 100%. So yeah, that's funny. On my list here, I have, I have Harboring, Arnold and Son, and Louis Monet uh, is the other watch brand that, um, again, you know, you have history involved. The, it's a relaunch of, a, of, you know, or I guess a, a re reviving of a name that was famous for chronographs, but a, a brand that started in 2000 um, only makes uh, about 500 watches a year, and you can find their watches... You know, like you said, uh, depreciation is your friend. And I personally sold Luminane chronographs um, for uh, uh, for under 10. In fact, the last one I sold looks like we had one, no, right at $10,000. And I think the retail on that watch was just over $20,000. So you're, there are that in this price range, you can find some of these boutique brands, hand finished movements, like you said, and very rare pieces that have depreciated down under the $10,000 mark. Another important piece to mention, and it it was originally a $16,000 watch, but you can pick up the JLC Amvox 2 vertical yeah. trigger chronograph all day long for under 10000 No chronograph pushers. You tap the crystal at 12 to start and stop. You tap the crystal at 6 to reset. In-house caliber, 44 millimeter grade 5 titanium. You can get it in black and tie. You can get it in bare tie. But it's a watch you can pick up between like 7,000 and 8,000 full box papers unpolished. A really great piece. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, watchbox.com right now, we have one listed for like 79.50, which I think is the lowest I've seen that watch in forever. I think when, when I was first exposed to that piece, it was back in, I think, 2014. Uh, when you and I were down, down in Hollywood, Florida, I saw that watch and I think it was trading for probably close to 10 and it was... I, you explained you explained the function of that watch, and I thought this has got to be one of the greatest feats of engineering of any watch brands. And I'm, I'm curious as to why no other brands have gone towards 
uh, using the crystal as uh, as a chrono pusher. It, it seems like it's such a such a an obvious step. Well, Richemont's got a lot of money to defend its patents, so I don't see that happening. I guess. Um, I would also say this. Um, if you're into cool JLC chronographs, the roughly 1998 to roughly 2005, I'm going to say, Reverso Grand Sport Chronograph Retrograde is really cool. Uh, that's a watch with two sides, time on one side, chronograph on the other side. You've got a retrograde display for the chronograph minutes. You've got a movement originally derived from, I want to say, the 829 and the 1996 Reverso uh, the Rose Gold Reverso Limited Edition Chronograph. It's a really cool piece because the chronograph's on one side and the time is on the other. It's a different looking Reverso. It's a bit more water resistant at 50 meters than the standard watch. So you can pick those up all day long for between like five and $7,000 steel on a rubber strap. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, since we talked about the, the Zins early on, uh, Turning back the clock to our last price category, $2,550 for a Damasco DC-80, which is basically like the wannabe EZM-11. But it's got a lot of arguments to recommend it in its own right. I just want to mention that. There are no EZM-11s in production, but you can get a Damasco DC-80. Oh, very interesting. Well, so the, the last one I want to mention in this price range, um, and it's a, it's a watch I haven't handled, but I've, I've been doing some research on, uh, and have you seen any of these, uh, the Bucher uh, Monero flybacks? Yes, I have. Okay. So have you, you've handled the watch. What are your, what are your thoughts on it? Cause I'm seeing you can get the watch in full 18 karat gold for just about $10,000, which I think if the, if the movement holds up, it seems like it's a tremendous value. And again, depreciation is your friend, especially with a brand like this. Well, it's a nice watch. But at the end of the day, I, I, I want to say that the Monero flyback is based on some manner of like a value 7750 derivative. Okay. It's a, I, I'm not entirely certain, but I think it is. And the thing about, you know, the, the thing about the Bukura watches is that at the end of the day, I like the fact that they're well-styled and handsome. Right. Uh, I do think... I want to say that the movement in the Monero flyback is based on some La Jupere modified version of the Valjoux 7750. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say this is kind of a, a brand to buy used because fundamentally it was only created in 2001. Bucherer has been around since the 1880s. But Carl F. Bucherer as a house brand has only been around for 19 years. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have a whole lot of... How should we put this? Currency brand, behind the brand? Yeah, brand equity, I'd say. Yeah, and at the end of the day, people buy them because they're fantastic depreciation specials. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily buy this watch new. No. Uh, I, I would buy it with confidence because Bucherer is a huge multi-billion dollar retailer and they're the money behind the brand. But realize that when you're buying a Carl F. Bucherer watch, you're buying something that approaches a very high-end house brand. Mm -hmm. So if you're familiar with like the Torneau brand watches from a few years back, it's that sort of thing. You're buying basically a house brand watch. And for me, all the horological interest on the Bucherer side is on, you know, the peripheral rotor automatics, the AF, you know, the AFB 1000, the 2000. Those are more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And you can get this basic flyback that's in the Bucher, or you can get it in a Girard Perigo from 20 years mm. ago. And that's 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 another one that we didn't really discuss either. In that, but you can find 
plenty uh, under five, but certainly under ten. Uh, you know, uh, really fantastic flyback chronos from Gerard Perigo. Yeah, those are fantastic watches. And since Gerard Perigo is well known for the WWTC, why not get a World Time chronograph? And why not get it in white ceramic or black ceramic? They've got a few models in ceramic some of which even include an additional flyback complication. Mm -hmm. And in those watches, you're going to be getting a Gerard Perigo, you know, 3300 series base movement, which is a GP movement. Uh, so you've got the opportunity to use the La Joux Parade developed Foudreon flyback, um, the split second based on that movement, or you've got the opportunity to get a modular complication from GP using their 3300 base with, you know, a world time or a flyback complication added on. Plus, there's the R&D 01 chronograph, which is probably the most comprehensively um, realized and imaginative pure motorsports chronograph I've ever seen. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, you're, you just rattled off a bunch there, and, and there, there is some tremendous value in all those. So, but, so uh, moving on to the next uh, price range, which would be uh, between 10 and 20. So now you're going to find uh, uh, some... Some higher quality movements, uh, I'd say Vacheron Overseas, uh, Chronos Second Gens, you can find almost every one of those in, in this price range. You can also find a lot of depreciated gold medals, uh, gold models. So then like some of those, well, so you can find the, um, uh, an Ublo Unico in steel, ceramic, or gold in this price range, which uh, again, you know, I guess it's debatable whether or not those are good watches or not. I like them. Not everybody does, but uh, I think that there is some merit there. Um, also in this price range, you're looking at um, some, you know, uh, uh, Panerai flyback chronos in steel, titanium, and gold. Uh, I think that this is kind of like the bulk of where you're going to get a lot of value until you get up into that really, really higher echelon stuff. Yeah, so I, I would say if you're looking at a watch in the 10,000 plus range, you really need to consider the Glossuta Original uh, 70s chronograph panorama date. It's a watch that is swimmable. It's a watch that looks great on a bracelet, great on a strap. You've got an innovative movement with flyback capability, a power reserve, double-digit date, a unique chronograph display. Uh, you've got a watch that is remarkably deluxe with the Caliber 37. It's got a brand new latest generation movement developed specifically for this watch. And you're getting a watch from a brand that makes maybe 10,000 pieces a year, the majority of which are dress watches. So this is the way to go for me. 70-hour power reserve, flyback capability, fun details like an on-off chronograph indicator on the case back. That's right. Who needs that? No one needs it, but I'm <laughs> glad it's there. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Glashuta is, is again, another brand that probably doesn't get as much love as they deserve. They deserve part of a larger group. So maybe they get buried, uh, do some really, really interesting designs and it's, and it's a good step towards German watchmaking, right? So if you're not ready to spend the money on a, a Longa, which is going to be in our next price range, and, and, and in my opinion, might be the king of the chronographs, so we can debate that a little bit. Um, Glashuta is a great way to step into that into that type of watchmaking. Also, they were way ahead of the curve with this watch. Mm -hmm. You know, six years ago on a full bracelet, they were launching a 70s tribute sports watch. And today, that's what everyone's trying right. to do. Yep. Back then, you know, they, they called the trend over half a decade early. As a result, it's not a Me Too watch, it's not a bandwagoner, it's just a really well-executed period tribute 
that wears like a modern watch and you're getting a great movement, you're getting a great bracelet, it's got an incremental adjustment slider built right in, all the individual links are removable for sizing, the quality of what you get is incredible. And yeah. I would say realistically, uh, most people are caught up in the Daytona, but once you're talking ten to $20,000, you get yourself a used steel Rolex Yachtmaster 2, mm -hmm. which I prefer to the Daytona. I think the programmable countdown is great for all the things I use a chronograph for. So for cooking, for short-term reminders, I've never once sailed in a regatta, so <laughs> forget that. But a programmable countdown chronograph is a useful thing. And you're getting a fun watch that wears nothing like the 44 millimeter deep sea. Don't be put off by the 44 millimeter size. You're getting a very wearable watch. Mm -hmm. in yeah, it's the Outmaster too. Without a doubt, it's much more balanced on the wrist. And and again, so right now uh, you can actually put in this price range. You can put the Yachtmaster two in steel. Uh, or in two tone against a um, a one one six five two zero. So the the pre ceramic post Zenith version Daytona. That's where you're going to find this watch as well. So if if it's a if if you're making your decision between the two, and it's funny because uh, like for me the Daytona is very wearable. I think I think almost anybody who puts that watch on their wrist is going to feel like it's wearable. Some people feel like it's a little too small, but those there's many people who who can wear that watch. But also there's many people who can wear that watch and the Yachtmaster. So like you said the the fit of that watch is not like a 44. It's probably closer to a 42 on the wrist as opposed to the deep sea that's going to be probably more like a 46, right? That's exactly how I describe it. The Yachtmaster 2 is not thick. The deep sea is, and that yeah. makes all the difference. Makes a huge difference. But I'd say that you are the first person to ever tell me that it has a that the yacht master has a useful chronograph i think every, everyone who everybody who i know who's ever owned that watch or ever handled it said i don't know how to use this watch so i don't know if you've done it yet before yet before but you might have to uh create a uh a how-to video on how to use that chronograph since uh you're you're convincing me now that it's that it's usable especially in cooking which is something i is my is my second hobby besides watches I have pulled out Yachtmaster 2s from our corporate stock to use while shooting my videos because I know the video's got to be between five and six minutes, hopefully no longer. Mm -hmm. So I'll set the Yachtmaster 2. It'll be sitting there ticking down while oh. I'm shooting the watch video, and it gives me my waypoints, minute one, minute two, minute three, and I know where I've got to be, and it's got to be finished by the time the countdown runs out. All right. Well, then then, then it's settled. You have to make a uh, how to use in every situation the Yachtmaster 2. Maybe, maybe we can set that that watch market on fire because that's one of the one few stainless rolexes that uh really hasn't exploded in value during this whole uh you know this whole period that we've been seeing over the last about four years well, that's a fact and if you want something that's maybe even the next level mm -hmm. of what the Yachtmaster 2 offers the Ulysse Nordin Marine Regatta is even more sophisticated it gives you the ability to program a countdown up to 10 minutes and not only will it count down from 10 minutes, but it will then start counting up and the chronograph will reverse direction at the end of the countdown. And it will start counting using a central minutes register, which is very intuitive. Uh, that movement is not just protected by patents, but it has over 600 pieces, which makes it more complex than some potentially grand complications. And you can pick up that marine chronograph used. And I should mention, Highly water resistant for about eleven to twelve thousand dollars. That's a lot of watch if you want something different than the Rolex Yachtmaster, but still just as capable. Yeah, without a doubt. And and that's one thing that I've always loved about the Marine line is that it's so unbelievably uh, comfortable on the wrist. Because you know, for me as a Panerai fan, I like having um, traditional lugs 
So basically like four lugs on the watch, but with the Marine, you're getting more of like the Hublot style lugs where they're extended. And even still, which tend to be a little bit uh, harder for me to wear with a flat wrist, but they pull that off so well, uh, especially with their supple rubber straps that it's infinitely wearable. And, and yeah, like that's certainly on my radar as a, as a quality and a value chrono. And uh, from, from a brand that's, that, you know, maybe doesn't, maybe gets a bad rap possibly from their marketing, but it's a very quality brand. And, and on top of that, they, their, their, their service center is one of the most responsive and, and easy to deal with um, out of any brand, which a lot of brands aren't that way. I'll also say this, when you're buying a Ulysse Nordin, mm -hmm. pre-owned makes a lot of sense because the combination of depreciation with the UN brand and the fact that they offer five-year warranties, get a one-year-old watch that's still got four years of coverage. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. It really is. Not many brands are sticking behind their watches besides Rolex for five years, right? So that's, that's a fact. I mean, five years should be the standard. Now we've got AP, we've got Rolex, we've got Omega, we've got Ulysse Norden. I think we've got some smaller brands too, uh, which have kind of joined that bandwagon. Sure. But at the end of the day, no one should accept a two-year watch warranty anymore. That should be extinct. Yeah, I mean, these things are, are, are built to outlive us. So at least their their initial lifespan should be, or, you know, should last until their uh, uh, their first servicing, which is usually five years. So it makes a lot of sense. All right. I think, uh, I think we got that covered and That's right. I think we're in agreement. Yeah. So, all right. The, uh, so are we missing anything in the, in the under 20,000 watch? So I mentioned the Vacheron. Uh, do you have any notes on, on it? Maybe like a second gen Vacheron? I know that that's, that's something that you're fond of that the second gen as opposed to the, uh, the third. Um, but you can find almost any iteration in that price range. I, I think it's a tremendous value. Yeah, I think most people would agree that the big date dial is more attractive. The individual dial, I think the dial materials used for the third generation are very impressive. Right. But for the most part, if you want to look at architecture, I think the, the big eye minutes register and the double date makes that generation two overseas chrono particularly charismatic. Yeah, I think I think I would agree wholeheartedly with you. And then the fact that the 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 highly engineered bracelet, which is probably the most comfortable steel bracelet in watches uh coupled with the fact that it, it uh every single link is removable which is cannot be understated i think you mentioned what the glashute was the same way yes and i think that people don't realize how important it is to balance your bracelet and if not if every link every uh, link is not removable then there's a lot of opportunity for those bracelets to be unbalanced in fact the uh tudor black bays which are some of my favorite watches uh, are very hard to balance on my flat wrist, and they only have a certain amount of um, of uh, removable links, and it causes just unending frustration. So, being able to machine put the you know the expense into making every single link removable, I think is cannot be understated. Uh, definitely, I want to say there's a company called Broliolo down in Ticino that makes most of those bracelets for the likes of uh, Longa and Glasuta Original and IWC. In general, when you see BRO on the clasp of the bracelet, you know that they made it. Oh, okay. and, and it's usually it's that all removable link thing with the uh, with the sliding clasp. Okay, all right, I'll keep a lookout for BRO. That's interesting. I didn't I did not know that. But um, all right, so that's so we've covered under twenty. So now we get to the heavy hitters. You're getting into some really, really special pieces. You're getting into um, so uh, over twenty, under fifty. You're you're going to be able to pick up uh, a watch from the from Paddock, from AP, from um, from Vacheron, of course. Now longer, you're going to get into 
there, I think, well, so you would have been able to pick up a chronograph from uh, FP Jorn for under 50 if you were looking last year, not certainly not this year. Um, but yeah, now you get into some some real serious pieces. You're like you're looking at you know 5170s. You're looking at um, Vacheron and Patrimony chronos with the same movement as the 5070. You're looking at datagraphs. Uh, you can get a platinum 39 millimeter datagraph with a black dial for uh, under under the fifty thousand dollar mark. Um, but you're getting into some really serious pieces now. Yeah, this is kind of where it gets fun. Between $20,000 and $50,000, you can get the Jugera LeCoult Duomet, just about any That's variant right. of the Duomet chronograph. I personally owned the Black Dial White Gold model for four years after lusting over it for four years, so eight years of bliss. And I thought that watch was everything JLC claimed it was. It was chronometer accurate, even with the chronograph running. It looked like a longa on the case back. The dial was super cool with the sort of matching center seconds for chrono, center seconds for time, foudroyant chronograph, you know, flying second, two power reserve indicators, a scrolling minutes disc. Those are beautiful watches. And if you want the yellow gold model, you know, the price is almost ridiculous. It's almost half of what the watch cost originally. It's going to be in the low to mm -hmm. mid-20s. Uh, and I would also say that the JLC Extreme Lab 2, now you're getting into a watch that's more than a chronograph. It's got a lot of other stuff going on, like a GMT, quick-release lugs, multifunction crown. But the chronograph on the Extreme Lab 2 is probably the best one available since it has a 60-minute register for its minutes, not 30, and it's a jumping digital display of minutes rather than a radial indicator. The chronograph also features an hours register that measures up to 24 hours, which is something you are not going to see on many chronos. So you've got a better display of minutes and you've got a longer legged hours register. So if you want to time something that could almost be up to a day in duration, that's the chronograph to get easier to read, smarter, and more capable. If you want something like that, but bigger, I know it's hard to imagine a bigger watch than the Extreme Lab 2, you can still find the ultra rare 48 millimeter Eterna manufactured Porsche design P6910 counter, which has a digital hours and minutes display. Fundamentally, it's based on the Valju 7750, but that's like saying that a chihuahua is based on a wolf. <laughs> it is, there were quite yes. a few changes. So this is an impressive watch that originally cost, you know, almost six figure type money. It's got the most intuitive chronograph display you'll ever see. Eterna is backed by Chinese money. It will never go under. It will always be around to take care of these watches in the future. You've just got to be able to wear the 48-millimeter titanium case. So, so that comes to mind. I would also say that in this price point, you're talking about the Glasuta Original Pano Retrograph, which was made in 2001, just a few pieces, 150, I believe, in white gold, and then a handful, not numbered or limited, but scarce, in rose gold. And this is a watch that has a programmable countdown timer that features a chiming notification at the end of the countdown. It also has a conventional flyback chronograph function, and the movement, caliber 60, is as good as anything in terms of finish and execution that you'll find from Longa. These are watches, even in the limited edition white gold variant, that sell in the high 20s, so you're not that far above the lower boundary for this price class. You're going to get the datagraph in this price point, you're going to get the dual med, but if you want something really different, and I can't think of any any chiming countdown 
chronographs that you can program other than this one. So it's a very cool watch, again, from Geo, very rare, and it was very expensive when new. So you're getting a ton so, of watch for your Okay, money. so I want to touch on the um, Extreme Lab too. So what, in rose gold, do you know off the top of your head what the retail is on a watch like that? The rose gold model, when it was new, it was probably somewhere around $87,000, $85,000. Jeez. So, I mean, that's, that's a watch that's often forgotten. And it's a watch that right now I'm seeing being offered in, in like the mid $30,000 range. And I think that that is a tremendous value in terms of a chronograph. So if I see that watch and I think about today's market, um, I'm look, I'm thinking about maybe like a Richard Mill RM11, right? So it, it, think about what you'd have to spend on an RM11. On the low end, you're about uh, $140,000, $150,000 and, and they go up higher in terms of special editions and whatnot. And you're not, and you're getting a watch that is not nearly as engineered as this, but has a, a very similar aesthetic. So I think that for somebody who loves the aesthetic of a Richard Mill, but doesn't have the money to spend, like basically doesn't have a house in their a house in their bank account ready to ready to uh, to be wired, or doesn't want to buy into the hype, I think this is a fantastic watch that is again often forgotten that you can find for less than a steel, you know, time only Nautilus right now. And you know, I'm probably slandering JLC by saying it cost $87,000 new. JLC pricing was so ridiculously honest. The watch itself was probably even less than that. It was probably in the, the high 60s, low 70s, because they were basically honest about the price premium of gold. What does gold cost? You know, you're going to have how much of it? Like two, three ounces in the watch? Right. There's no reason to price it. $30,000 above the titanium watch, you know, it, there's no reason for it. Sure. And like you said, um, you know, it's a buyer's market for either version, gold or titanium. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that in the low $30,000 range, you can get a, an Extreme Lab 2, either the blue or the red one in titanium and ceramic. Right. And if RM, if RM built this watch, first of all, RM wouldn't build this watch. AP, Renoe Papi, would build the watch for them right. because this is beyond RM. Um, JLC took four years from showing that watch in 2010 to selling the first version in 2014, took four years to bring it to market. So you can imagine the technical challenge of building that nearly 600 part movement. Wow. And, and do you know in roughly what kind of numbers these things were produced in just to put a, uh, yeah, I want to on the market of it. I, I want to say the rose gold model was made in 200 pieces, and then there were two titanium versions, the blue and the red. Both were made in 300 pieces. Wow. So so you're looking at roughly 1,000 watches or less than 1,000 of these in existence, and you're still finding them for you know a large percentage off the original retail. I'm seeing one gray market dealer saying that the rose gold was a 56.5 retail. I don't know if that's true or not, but... I yeah, mean, no way that was true by the time it got to market. Sure. I'm thinking like 69.70. Wow. So, I mean, I think I think we might, that might be as in regards to a, a highly complicated, highly engineered sport chrono in the more than 20, but less than $50,000 range. I think that might be the answer, right? That might be the, the watch to buy. Yeah, it's also a GMT. 
It's also got quick-release lugs that comes with two straps, one in leather, one in rubber. It has the most elaborate pin buckle you've ever seen in your life that by itself is like a 4,000 Swiss franc part. Yeah. Uh, it, it has adjustability built into the pin buckle. It has a hacking lever. It has a second column wheel with a function indicator just for the crown. Right. It's shock-resistant. It's 100 meters water-resistant, vertical clutch, column wheel, 65-hour power reserve. It's all of those things. And... And I got to be honest, the ergonomics are great for a big piece. That's right, because it's a 46 millimeter. I've, I've worn this watch, and I know I, I've seen it on your wrist too, and it's not overbearing. It's a 46 millimeter might scare people, but when you put it on the wrist, it wears much more comfortably than that. The, the ergonomics is, are fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It wears more like, let's say, a 43. Yeah, absolutely, which is at the upper end of what really any watch should be. Um, so it just wears like a large wearable chrono. So I think that's fantastic. But so what's funny is that in this range, you get that watch. That's a tremendous value. But what I believe might be the, the best chrono that you can buy just in general, and I'm sure that there's some argument to be made, but it's the Datagraph. And you can find the, the 39 yeah. Platinum Datagraph at the Black Dial, which is, that's, that is a grail of mine. You can find that for just under $50,000. And I think you get an unbelievable value with that piece at that price point. Yeah, certainly when you compare the technical sophistication of it to something like a Patek Philippe 5070, mm -hmm. if you're looking at a 5070P, you're probably going to pay, I mean, what, what would you say? You're on the market side of things. Would, would a 5070P be a $150,000 watch? I think it would. Yeah. On I, your model? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's a watch that you don't see very often pull, uh, you know, being traded because it is so rare. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that does uh, sum up the market on that watch specifically. I mean, I see people asking even lot more than that, but I think it probably sells in the mid mid hundreds, which is it's just insane. So you look at the the technical aspects of that watch, and and that's more about there's there's some hype behind it, but also you know some old world charm that goes with a fifty seventy. But I think the the datagraph is going to be more engineered. It's also going to be a, a more handsome watch and a more wearable watch. Well, certainly the other thing to remember is that Longa launched that watch in 1999, one year after the 5070. Right. And it's not just that they designed the movement from scratch and Patek adapted the Lemagna caliber for the 5070. It's the fact that on top of everything else, the finish level forced Patek to reconsider its standards. It had a date. It was a flyback. You know, both things the 5070 doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And the level of execution of the movement was such that Philippe Dufour chose it as his personal timepiece. That's right. That's right. And I think that, that cannot be understated. Uh, Philippe Dufour, you know, one of uh, our greatest living watchmakers, is you know did, chose to wear that watch and, and still does, right? So it's it's uh, it's a fantastic piece. I think it's underrated. They do make the forty-one millimeter version, which I believe is a little too large for me, but um, I can understand you know why they made that watch. It's also in rose gold, and and uh, I mean, I, from a brand that I think you've mentioned before, it, it operates itself like an independent, um, but it is owned by a large. Uh, a large conglomerate Richemont. I mean, there's just, I feel like it's, it's disrespected and undervalued completely. Yeah, that's definitely true. And on top of everything else, this is a brand that makes maybe five to 6,000 watches a year. So mm -hmm. it's not as though they flood the market. No, it's not at all. I mean, they may, they're on par with, with Richard Mill in terms of their, uh, their production, but you see an RM11 trading for 50 to a hundred thousand dollars above its original retail. And you see, a, a datagraph trading for you know thirty thousand dollars below its original retail, it's just you know doesn't always make sense. Shall we discuss, guys, the limit? 
Let's do that because then we get into uh, the favorite brand of Godberg Jewelers. Um, and we could start there, and that's FP Journ, right? Which right now, you, that's where uh, Centigraphs are, are located is just above that $50,000 mark, which they used to just, again, like a year ago, or, or slightly below. I think it's a good, that's a good starting point. And then s literally sky's limit is, is, uh, <laughs> is a good way to, uh, to uh, describe this, uh, this price point in terms of these, because there's so many amazing pieces. Yeah. Assuming now we're not talking about an upper bounded price point, are, are we just saying now 50,000 50, and up? Yeah, we can do 50,000 and above. So we can start at, at the lowly number of 50,000 and, and then go to you know millions if you like. I don't, I, I don't know yeah. too many that are in the millions, but I'm sure you can figure something out. Well, I think if you've got $80,000 to spend on a chronograph, mm -hmm. you probably can't find a more beautiful example than the Long und Heine Albert. I would say the Albert for me is the most exquisite traditional column wheel lateral clutch chronograph you will ever find. It's a little bit sizey at 44 millimeters with a strong set of lugs, but at the end of the day with a choice between silver galvanized dial or grand faux enamel, a movement that is achingly beautiful that uses a real diamond as a capstone. I have seen this watch in person and it leaves nothing to be desired. If you want the German equivalent of something like Philippe Dufour, Carrie Voudelin and Roger Smith in terms of aesthetics and ethics, this is the way to go. And I would recommend that unreservedly. Uh, I would also say at this price point, if you can find one of the 50 2016 Parmigiani Tanda Cronor Anniversaire watches, that would be the way to go. You're going to be looking at either a rose gold or white gold 42 millimeter watch with a grand faux enamel dial in blue, a movement in rose gold with more inner uh, inward angles hand finished than I could even count. We're talking probably two dozen of them, and that's a conservative estimate. Uh, the movement in this watch is so achingly gorgeous that despite being a vertical clutch chronograph, which is generally kind of ugly and, and austere, right. the thing is still hot enough to melt your eyes like that Nazi from Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. Like it's, it's the ultimate chronograph. If you can, I had one once and I shot it once on camera. If you can find one of these things, it's also a split second, go for it because you will not find a more technically or aesthetically impressive chronograph. Even as good as the Long und Heine Albert is, the Chronorth is just legendary. There's 50 pieces out there, 25 in white gold, 50 pieces in rose gold. Both of them are showstoppers, and I've never seen one used. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I, so I've never handled this watch. Uh, I, I'm a fan of Parmigiani. The Chronor is an unbelievable piece, so it, it, it has so many elements that I love. And it's funny because the first glance, it, it actually has some visual aspects of, uh, of your dual met. So like, it, it, you know, which is a, 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 such a visually pleasing piece, but you're getting an unbelievable watch from an independent brand that is, that is in terms of depreciation is just, you know, basically found in the dirt in terms of price point. And, you know, that's, that's a watch that I don't think is trading very often because people who buy that watch are going to be owning that watch. That's not a piece that people chase or, or looking to buy and flip. And, uh, you know, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, the only one I shot was a new one that the owner requested I review on camera. So I've never wow. seen one used. That's in four years. We see everything. We see Patek Grand Complications, FP Journe, Grand Sonnery. We've never had one of these come through used. 
Yeah, that's good. Well, so have you have you reviewed a fifty three twenty seven? I think I have at some point. Right, which I, I would I would probably have to agree. I'm sure you have. So again, that's that's you know uh, 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 an unbelievably expensive paddock, and uh, in terms of rare you know rare pieces, you're getting a uh, you know the what do you call it? Sorry, your the Parmigiani is infinitely rare. Oh, sorry, yeah, I would fifty three seventy two. Sorry, that's what I meant. Not a fifty three twenty seven, half a million dollar paddock. Uh, oh. Oh, a fifty-two seventy. Yeah, I've, I've, I've yeah, fifty-three seventy-two. What, what, Sorry, I think we have some connection. Oh uh, no, no, here. no, 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 no. I've never reviewed a fifty-three seventy-two. Oh, okay. I'm still waiting on that one. Okay, we'll we'll get one before you get the next uh, uh, Parmigiani. Is the point? <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I would also say, realistically, though, we kind of we have forsaken the longa eighteen fifteen chronograph. I want to throw that out as a candidate between twenty thousand and fifty thousand dollars. That's right. That's a great way to get a stripped down datagraph. Yeah. And that's right. uh, I would also say that realistically at this price point, uh, consider any fifty seventy, they're all great watches. They're not technically sophisticated, but they're beautiful and it, the size is impressive on the wrist at forty two. They're really nicely proportioned. The dials are derived from, I want to say this 2512 prototype in the Patek Museum, mm -hmm. so they look really cool. I actually like the yellow gold 5070J with the black dial. I think that's the most impressive of them, and I'm rarely a guy to go for yellow gold. That or, I would say, a 5170P because the the blue gradient dial with the diamond indices is genuine is genuinely hot. Yeah. It's what the watch should have been from the beginning. I agree 100%. I, and in terms of comparing those, I've had this conversation with Mike Manjos before because, you know, he's a 5070 guy aesthetically because that's what we talk about. You know, that's the first thing that matters when buying a watch. I think aesthetically the 5170 is a little bit more modern and a little bit more handsome in my opinion. But in terms of collectability, especially if you ask a guy like Manjo's, the 5070 is the way to go. And, and you can't go wrong. A black dial with the yellow gold uh, case, I think that that's a trend that needs to come back and, and uh, you know, is, is something that's kind of underplayed right now. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd also say, realistically, in this price point, since we're not putting an upper bound on these things, sure. consider the de Bethune DB29 Maxi Chrono Torbion, because you're getting a watch that's a GPHG Chronograph Prize Laureate, 36,000 vibration per hour Torbion, five-day power reserve, central chronograph registers, achingly gorgeous movement architecture, uncompromising finish. You're getting a watch with a unique combination of vertical clutch engagement with a visible lateral clutch architecture. You're getting a timepiece that represents the best of what the most innovative brand in watchmaking can muster. And if I had to pick just one piece from their catalog as the clear flagship for the entire brand, that would be it. And that would be the way to go for roughly, uh, what does that watch cost? Like 270000 That's right. Well, if you can find it. It's, uh, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's an unbelievable piece. That's, that's, that was a bold statement, though, from the most innovative brand in watchmaking. Yeah, the most innovative watch from the most innovative brand. That's how I'd phrase it. Interesting. Okay, that's, that's great. I mean, there are some really unbelievable innovative, innovative brands, but I think, yeah, I think you might be right. There's nobody who's doing what Debathune is doing right now. Yeah, you're talking about a brand that's patented six different balance wheels. Most companies wouldn't bother to make one of their own. <laughs> They've had six different, at least six different balance wheels, all seeking 
like isochronic performance, minimal coefficients of thermal expansion, maximum polar moments, all of this with multi-material compositions including platinum, silicon, titanium, white gold. It's genuinely awesome to see their balance wheels arrayed next to each other so you can trace the changes from the beginning. But if you want the watch that puts everything they do together, it's the DB29 Maxi Chrono. Wow, that's that's uh, that's a, a glowing review of the brand, and, and uh, I like I like that idea. The uh, Debethune I know is a brand that you've had your eye on, and and you said that you know that's certainly one that's going to end up in your collection uh, moving forward, um, and a brand that makes you know less than what five hundred watches a year. Yep, one hundred and fifty right now. One hundred fifty. So, scare wow. stuff. Jeez, wow, that's that's crazy. So, um, all right, so a few more in the in the in the more than 50, not all of them are going to be, um, you know, uh, Debethune, Maxi, Turbion, Maxi Chrono, Turbions, but um, I'd say, hmm, here's a fun one that you're certainly going to have to pay more than 50000 for, and that is the uh, Rainbow Daytona in rose gold. Ah, that's a good point. Yep. I, I, <laughs> that's one of those watches that costs what it costs because it's a jewelry piece. Yep. So you got to be comfortable with that to pay that kind of money for a Daytona. You got to be cool with the jewels. That's right. Exactly. Which, you know, listen, man, there's, there is some merit to a piece like that. I, I mean, it's, it's limited to how, however many they made that it's not numbered, but they're very hard to find. And I have people saying, Hey, listen, man, if you could find me one for 175,000, I'll pay today. I said, hey, well, good luck. Cause I can't, I mean, again, you know, it's, it's a watch that people chase uh, even though there's not as much hor or a really any horological value. Um, I guess the same kind of person that's going to spend, say, $200,000 on one of those watches is also going to spend roughly that amount on an RM1103, right? Yeah, that's that's a fact. I would also say, realistically, if you've got that kind of money, for God's sakes, get, give Carrie Voodlin in a phone call and order mm -hmm. the Masterpiece Chronograph. You could get a Masterpiece Chronograph from Carrie Voodlin and and have the whole thing customized by a master for the price people are paying for, and this is my personal, like, bet noir, but the, do you remember the Patek Philippe 5976, the 44 uh, millimeter white gold limited edition diamond index Nautilus chronograph, the closest thing Patek's ever done to a Nautilus offshore? Yeah, yes. <laughs> that was a watch under $100,000 retail. Those sell for about 300 grand now. Yeah. Don't get that. Get anything but that. And I hate to say it because it, it's a decent watch, but it's not worth three times retail. And it's a big ego trip that might make the statement you don't actually wish to make. So, yeah, call Kerry, please, if you've got that kind of money to spend on a chrono. Yeah, well, I, and I would I would certainly agree. But there's one thing that the the, the Voodalanin can do that I can't do that the Rainbow Daytona the RM and even this uh, the the paddock, uh, the 44 millimeter paddock can do. And that's get you laid on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say get you into a Miami strip club, but that okay. works too. Yeah, well, listen, all you, all you need is an ID to get into a Miami strip club. <laughs> but, uh, all right, so let me let me think. Is there anything else notable above $50,000 that if, if, I, if the sky's the limit, I have to have this in my collection? Are we missing anything here? Well, I mean, there's always more. You could go on forever. I would say realistically... Multi-complications are fun. If you've got the cash to swing like a Patek Philippe 5208, mm -hmm. the only true grand complication Patek Philippe wristwatch would be a fun one. Well, I guess there's also the 5175 and the 6300. <laughs> but that's a good place to look. Uh, Patek Philippe uh, 5951, uh, I think Monopusher Split Second Perpetual Calendar, pretty cool. Uh, if you wanted to go with something that's perhaps a little bit more subtle, above $50,000... 
Uh, Vacheron just launched a new tourbillon chronograph, mm. so that's worth your attention. Yes. And, jeez, uh, what else can I think of? There's, there's always a crazier chronograph. That's the problem. And if it doesn't exist, you can have some independent make it for you from scratch. Yeah. So, Christophe Claret will make that watch for you. Yeah, he'll even put your name on the dial. <laughs> that's right. One of one. It's got to be worth a million dollars. You know, the there's the, um, uh, what is it? The like the 25977, I want to say. I think it's the Royal Oak Tourbillon Chronograph. That's a fun piece, but yes. it's big as hell. I've sold that and watch more than one time. That's a fun piece. Mm -hmm. uh, also, let's be honest. I mean, at this price point, you could start thinking about getting a complicated datagraph. You could get yourself a datagraph perpetual. You could get yeah. yourself a, a datagraph perpetual tourbillon. You could start talking about getting an Alonga Unzona double or triple split, both mm -hmm. of which are very innovative, historically important watches in the, you know, the upper echelons of, of pricing. And there's a million independent brands out there. There are RMs from the beginning of the line that are split second chronographs with tourbillon built in. Uh, you could I guess my, my regret is that there's no really high-end Japanese mm. chronograph. I mean, other than going to like Hajime Asayoka or someone like that who could build it from scratch, it's not like there's a Seiko Krator equivalent to the Kari Boudelain and Masterpiece chrono. Well, maybe they're listening and, and they'll change that soon because I think that that's, again, you know, we've, we've discussed chronos across every single platform, uh, you know, with any different complication, you can add a chrono. It's... It's like, hey, throw a tourbillon on it, but it's actually useful, and, and it's a complication that um, that everybody can kind of enjoy. Yeah, and I'd also say above $50,000, spare a thought for some of the better versions of the the Mont Blanc Minerva movements. That's so the right. 1858 chronos, uh, the 1858 chronos with the Minerva movements and the, the enamel dials, the smoked enamel dials, these are all awesome pieces. And, you know, in terms of the finishing, you're looking at, a movement that's as beautiful as anything from Patek, Longuntaina, Roger Smith, Kerry Voudelain, and you know, all of the best of the best, whether independent or big brand, you're getting the equal of that with the Mont Blanc Villeray. Yeah, and I think uh, with that, I think we can uh, table this discussion for another time. We could probably do another hour on chronographs. We, we I feel like we, we talked about every chronograph that exists, but we also sped through them. So this is a, uh, it's a large topic that can probably go on for hours, but... Um, I think we should table it there, and I appreciate you taking your time with me today, Tim. Thanks so much, Josh. This was a blast. Let's do yeah, it again. Absolutely. Well, let's let's think of another complication to discuss, and and we'll get back on uh, on our microphones and record again. Bingo. Awesome. Well, thanks, guy. Thanks, guys. Uh, again, make sure you check out our our YouTube channel. It's Watchbox Studios to catch uh, Tim does uh, was it watches tonight, and then also uh, wake up with watches. Right? Did I did I get that wrong? Wake up with watches and weekend watches weekend are on watches. Watchbox. Those are on Watchbox reviews. So oh, okay. if you're interested in one, subscribe to both. Okay, that's right. Well, I I wonder they always pop up. And those are really the only shows that I that I watch now are, are are weekend watches and wake up with watches. So that's right. It's on Watchbox reviews. We also have Watchbox Studios for more of uh, our um, after hour shows and whatnot. Check out our Instagram. We have uh, Watchbox Instagram. Tim Masso. You also have one minute watch reviews on your Instagram. It's at Tim underscore Masso, right? That's correct. All right. I'm at uh, Mr. Thanos, M-R-T-H-A-N-O-S. If you can ch uh, reach out with to me on Instagram and uh, make sure you subscribe to this podcast as well on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you find your podcasts. All right. Very well. Talk to you next time, Tim. Time out. Tim out. Yep. Talk to you. Bye.
Mm-hmm.